Ho, ho, ho. Green Knight. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the latest Empire Podcast spoiler special. Uh, I'm feeling tip-top, so what we need right now is a two-hour hallucinatory <laughs> extravaganza to talk about that I don't fully understand. This is going to be <laughs> a lot of fun. We are talking, of course, about David Lowry's fantastic, incredible The Green Knight uh, which is available on Prime Video, of course, uh, should you be so inclined to check it out. If you haven't already done so, wonderful, wonderful film. And joining me to discuss it are three of the finest knights of the pod table that I could muster at short notice. Uh, we're joined, of course, by Beth Webb. Hello. Hello, Beth Webb. Hi. How are you? I'm good. I'm well. Thank you. Excellent. Yep. Helen O'Hara, I know how you are. I've seen you for the last two hours. You've oh. just been sitting there with the same fucking seat with the same expression on your face for the last two hours. How are you? Ah, fuck you too. Oh, <laughs> what a wonderful time we're having. John Nugent, how's the atmosphere? Uh, putrid. <laughs> I, I love that John is wearing mustard in, you know, in, in yes. just to pay tribute. This is, this is roughly the same colour as the yeah, cape as that the cape. Dev Patel wears. Yeah. John's yeah. hair is Dev Patel-esque. Nah, that's say. a stretch. That's, <laughs> it's, it's, not. it's very kind of you to say. Your hair is exquisite. It's, it's not at its most Dev Patel, but it's, you no, know, it's yeah. more De- Dev Patel than any of the it, rest of us. John yeah. has, let me just say, John has sat ever strategically so far away from me that I can't touch his hair. <laughs> Damn it, John. It's got weird quite quickly. Oh, it's going to get a lot weirder. <laughs> that is for sure. Uh, anyway, before we get into this film, before we go on an odyssey with this movie, let's hear from the man who made it, David Lowry. Uh, I spoke to him on Zoom a few weeks ago. Always have a fun time talking with David. Uh, he is one smart cookie and for my money, one of the best filmmakers working today. And we had a good old natter about this. Do please enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the writer and director of The Green Knight, Mr. David Lowry. How the devil are you, sir? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks, Chris. Excellent. Where are you at the moment? I am back home in Dallas, Texas, although only for a second because I'm jumping back into post-production this coming week on my next movie. So I'm going to be somewhere, somewhere else in the world. <laughs> here, there. They seek him here. They yes. seek him there. Um, yep. Uh, were you aware at any point at all of the kerfuffle uh, that <laughs> the lack of UK release date for the Green Knight caused over here? People were rioting in the streets. There were cats and dogs living together, mass hysteria. It was it was crazy. I was vaguely aware of it, indeed. And I was frustrated myself because I was like, very excited for the UK release. I felt it was a long time coming. And obviously this movie, I think, you know, it's a piece of uh, the... British literary tradition in a very prominent, you know, way. And I, I felt it belonged in UK cinemas, perhaps more than any other cinemas in the world. So when it was, when that rug was pulled out so suddenly, it was disappointing to me. It was a little surprising. I was, I was like, what? I didn't know why. It was, you know, I think it caught everyone off guard. And then uh, uh, my wife's movie was going to open the same day. And so we were deprived of the, uh, the competitive streak of, of seeing whose movie would rise to the higher point on the UK box office charts. Oh, no, that, that would have been disastrous. You wouldn't, you don't want that. You don't want that sort of competition. What's going on? <laughs> we definitely don't. It's actually probably a blessing in disguise. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But uh, because this is going out after the film comes out, well, I, I did want to get into spoilers for want of a better term uh, with you. And um, you mentioned there the, the literary tradition. And my first, my first big question, David, is did you at any point consider taking the credit written and directed by Anonymous, to keep up that tradition. No, but now that you mention it, I realize what a 
amazing missed opportunity that is. <laughs> in many ways, Anonymous was the Alan Smithy of his day. Indeed. I, I, wonder what the, I wonder if I could get away with that with a DGA. I, could you actually do that? It'd be a fun challenge. <laughs> get your people to call their people and we'll see what can happen for the, uh, yes. for the, for the DVD release. Um, with these things, though, with, with chats about, about uh, movies post-release, spoiler specials, etc., etc., I do like to ask directors about their intention behind the opening and closing shots. Yes. Now, the opening shot of the movie is Dev on Fire, um, which I believe wasn't initially the intended opening shot. Is that true? It, it's correct. I originally had that um, about 20 minutes later. I had a dream in the script. The dr- this dream sequence occurred about 20 minutes into the movie after he's had his confrontation with the Green Knight. And, and that's, where it, that's where it would have been had the movie opened last summer. But one of the, one of the many little changes I made um, when I was able to just keep editing the movie rather than rushing it into theaters was... Uh, I showed it to some friends and uh, the director, Ty West, uh, is a friend of mine who always gives me valuable notes. And he was he said, I should just start the movie there because I, he's, he felt that you needed to sort of introduce this concept of magic as quickly as possible. And that if I if I put that scene there um, with some voiceover narration, it would sort of serve the same purpose, perhaps, as like the Galadriel's narration at the beginning of Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Uh, and I tried it out and it just worked great. And the narration there is a version of the opening or part of the opening of the original poem. And it just sort of sets the stage in a very uh, appropriate way. And by that point, the first teaser had come out and that image was already out there of, the, of, of Deb with his head on fire. And, and so when it, if it had occurred 30 minutes later in the movie, you know, everyone already knew it. You know, it was, a, it was, a, it was, a, it was part of the lexicon. And, and so getting it out of the way early actually helped the movie uh, in terms of uh, getting... It, it, it made uh, it made everything flow more lucidly from that point forward. It means people aren't checking their watches, going, "Okay, when's this? When's that shot from the trailer going to show?" Yes, exactly. Up? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And but the the, the uh, for me the the next shot is the real opening shot. And was and that always the opening shot? The, the, the that was one always with... the opening shot. It's it's exactly as scripted. Um, and and what I wanted to do with that shot was translate the opening of the poem and all of the text at the beginning of the poem as literally as I could without actually like just reading it aloud. So everything you see there is a representation of the first couple lines of the poem up until our introduction, up until our introduction of Gawain. At that point, we sort of leave the poem behind, but everything that begins there with the animals and, and what's going on, that's, that's me looking for a cinematic equivalent to the opening lines of, of this 700-year-old text by Anonymous. Uh, now, let me ask you this, because I know you're, you're a very meticulous director. The, the dripping of the water, was that, yeah. was that deliberate or accidental? Because it's, it's oh, 100%. so... I was, we had a, you know, we were very clear with our special effects team that we needed water to be dripping from that window. Uh, we had a piece of, you know, rubber tubing that was like just setting that up and it would follow exactly the right pace and then working with Daniel, our composer, to make sure the music worked in syncopation with that water drippage it was uh it was everything there was very very planned out that was a that was a it wasn't as tricky as i thought it was going to be the, but that whole opening shot getting that to work just like that was uh it was a required a bit of engineering <laughs> and location scouting to find a castle that had a window that looked out into a courtyard like that that just like that was i'm i'm 
grateful we found one. Amazing. And uh, uh, Ireland will do that for you. That's, that's Ireland, right? That's, that's true, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. We've got loads of castles. I used to live in a castle. Um, <laughs> you could have used mine for free. Um, but the, the closing shot, David, can you talk about that? Was that always how you, you ended the film when you were writing the script with that, that yeah, shot of the Green Knight? Yeah, that's exactly how the script ends. And the the intention was always, you know, to bring the film to a close earlier. Like, you know, that like the the climactic moment of the movie is a few moments earlier. And then the last shot is the denouement, so to speak. And it feels very abrupt when you're watching it, perhaps, depending on your, your taste in, in endings. But, but <laughs> if you unpack what's going on there, like I, I, I get caught up calling it abstract or, um, or abstruse or, um, you know, saying that it's all uh, they're open for interpretation. For me, the meaning is clear, and you just have to sort of like draw that meaning out of it. And we didn't ever, you know, I've heard I've, I've had people ask me like, did you have a more concrete ending? Was it was it always sort of um, left open interpretation? The one thing we did shoot that was different was that last shot of Ralph. Uh, Ralph Ineson that we end the movie on and when we shot that take we just I asked him like at the end of the take just stand up and raise the axe over your head and so we had so we we kept the camera rolling and he did that and I was like oh maybe I'd use that it was a very beautiful image it was like Mm -hmm. a striking image but it it put a point on the movie It, it it changed the emphasis on the ending and the emphasis needed to be what it was. And that's what I had written. That's the way that, uh, that closing statement needed to be uttered and not just the Ross line, but the closing statement that is the final two minutes of the movie, it needed to have a certain syncopation to it. It needed to have a certain rhythm Mm. and it needed certain shots to fall where they lay. So like extending that one shot past the point of its, uh, necessary termination was just, it was just unnecessary. It just was like fat, extra fat. And (laughs) it was fun to shoot, but, um, it was a beautiful image, but, um, that yeah. finger drawn across Dev's throat and that final line from Ralph with that twinkle in his eye, that's where the movie was meant to end. Yeah, that's sort of the twinkle in his eye and that sort of, you know, almost paternal or, or grandfatherly chuckle in the throat and uh, yeah, you know, almost it, sense of pride in him. Sense of pride, yeah, it's exactly that. He needed to look at him with a sense of pride and affection. I really wanted there to be affection there, um, a sense of love, and also, you know, I, a delight. Like, uh, he was, he's happy that... Dev's character that Gawain has made the right choice. And whether or not, you know, he then chops his head off or not is irrelevant, really. It, it, it matters to a certain extent, but what's more important is that Dev has reached that moment, that Gawain has reached that moment having made the right choice. And the Green Knight is so pleased with that. You know, I, I, wanted, I asked Ralph, I was like, can you play the scene as if you're Santa Claus and Dev is a child sitting on your knee? And that's what he did. And it's, it's just a beautiful thing to see. Absolutely. I mean, and there's so much as well that struck me about that that scene. You've you've talked in the past about, you know, how all your movies are therapeutic for you to an extent. And I know you've talked about how this was, uh, in a way, you working out things about your relationship with your mother in in this movie. But were you also thinking about just how people confront the the unknowable and how they confront the the 
unconfrontable, if you will. I thought an awful lot about my my dad when he ate when he um, when he got cancer, and mm-hmm. millions of people around the world who go, who got the can- who you know who who die of cancer and what they go through in their final weeks. That's that was going through my head as I watched as I watched uh, Gowan try to pluck up the courage to get to the point where he can make this decision, where he can look death in the eyes and 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 you know stare it face to face. That's that's absolutely what it was, and that's. I, I feel like m- most artists deal with this in their own way. I think if the, if you were asked to take a, a poll of, you know, of artists in all mediums, like what their most predominant themes are probably is mortality. Like that's one that we just, we just are always going to be dealing with as human beings. And I, I want to live my life in such a way that when death meets, comes to meet me, I, can feel with confidence that I won't be ready for it. No one ever really is ready for it or is willing is, is, is wants to, wants to meet with death, but I want to know that I've done my best up until that point. Yeah. Whenever that point comes and to, to, to meet it with some degree, if I'm lucky enough to, with some degree of composure and, and in my own experiences with death, with, you know, with the, the passing of a loved one, there's, there can be great beauty in that. It's sad, it's wrenching, it's physically painful, but there, there can be beauty in it. And I want, I hope to be able to find, I, I want to be able to find that beauty in my own passing. If I have, if I'm afforded that luxury, who knows how it'll come. It could just, I could get hit by a car tomorrow and not even know that it happened. I could face a illness for years and just deal with it every day for years. I don't know what it's going to be. and whatever it is, I am able to approach it in the way that Dev does in the final moment in this movie. That's what that's about. That's, a, that's why the whole movie slows down when he gets to the Green Chapel, because he's taking the time he needs to get ready for that inevitability. And, and that's what we have our lives for. You know, <laughs> our lives are for many things, but one of them is to prepare ourselves for that inevitability because it's going to come. And the best thing to do, I think, is to be aware of it and embracing and to, and to embrace that fact and to not run from it and, and to let the, to let that affection for the inevitability, um, ripple into how we live our lives on a day-to-day basis. Mm, I mean, it's obviously there throughout the film. It, it haunts him throughout the film, but you, 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 you get a sense whether it's in his con- confrontations with the scavenger or, or with St. Winifred or even the Lord and the lady, there's a sense that it's still an abstract thing for him. It's only when he gets to the Green Chapel for a day and a yeah. night, he's there watching, literally watching death in the face. It was something that on a production level, you know, when you have very limited time to shoot a scene and, and you don't know if you're going to be able to pull everything off, we were thinking like, should he spend less time there? Should he spend less time at the Green Chapel so we don't have to go into a night shoot so that we can, you know, spend more time with Ralph and his makeup so that we can, you know, get through that sequence faster and get onto the next scene we have to shoot. And, and it was tempting on a production level it was tempting to say, what if he just gets to the green chapel, sits down and the green knight wakes up. But I knew, and we all knew, I remember talking with Andrew Palermo, my DP about this. Like, I was like, would it help you at all? If we took out the night sequence, you don't have to worry about lighting for night at the end of the day. And he's like, sure. But aren't we like, isn't that what the movie's about? And it is, it's true. That is what the movie's about. And I would have rather 
ultimately sacrificed so many other scenes of great, you know, scenes where scenes where a lot of stuff was happening, for example, than to lose that scene, the sequence of him sitting there, just sitting there and waiting and waiting and collecting himself. Because for me, that is when his journey really, it's not that it begins, but it begins to bear fruit. Yeah. And I know we don't have a lot of time left. But there's some stuff, uh, some sequences I wanted to ask you about specifically. One of which is uh, Gowan's vision of his future, a future where he's riven by doubt and shame and nothing works out because he's made the wrong choice with the, the, with the Green Knight. Um, I wanted to ask about your thinking behind constructing that. Um, strangely, and I don't know whether this was an influence on you, it reminded me of Brian Cox's monologue at the end of The 25th Hour where he has, you know, where he, he, he paints an alternate future for Edward Norton's character. You're, this is a podcast, so no one is seeing how much my eyes just lit up with that. <laughs> but I 100% was thinking of that. The obvious connotation is Last Temptation of Christ, mm-hmm. which people have brought up and is true as well. But more than that, that monologue in 25th Hour is something I think about all the time. It's incredible. I think about that and Raising Arizona, the dream of the future and oh Raising Arizona as another one. Yeah. But that one in 25th hour is, and that movie has been on my mind lately because of you know, 9-11 and the anniversary, but I never am not thinking about that monologue. It's one of the most like, beautiful pieces of writing and filmmaking and the way in which it lays out the possibility of choices and the way in which we can get caught up in the possibility of choices that we have not yet made. It, it's heartbreaking. It's beautiful. And it, I don't know, it's, it's an incredible piece of filmmaking that is not talked about enough. And it was 100% uh, what I was thinking about when I started writing that. When I reached the point in the script, I didn't know that's what I was getting to. When I, when I reached the point in the adaptation where in the original text, Gawain goes home and then Green Knight says, you know, go home, but never take this belt off because let it be a mark of, of, mankind's shame you know the the shame and 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 uh um the deficit of of courage that we all have as human beings you know it's not something that you are going to be put to death for but it's something that you should always be reminded of the moment where you faltered yeah and i was writing that i was writing that version with the literal text and i just felt that the movie could go further i wanted to take the movie further and i started to think about the 25th hour and the way in which uh, Brian Cox could be in some ways the Green Knight in that sequence. Um, and anyway, I, I'm, I'm so amazed that you brought that up and so pleased and, and, and so happy to talk about that scene. And if anyone hasn't seen that movie or hasn't revisited it lately, it's, I highly recommend it. Oh, it's a fantastic movie. It's one of one of Spike's best. It's 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 got two amazing monologues alone, just for the you know worth the price of mission slash yep. rental slash purchase. Uh, but but this isn't the twenty fourth hours special. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we could talk about that film for a long, long time as well. But yeah, that that I thought that sequence was was astounding, uh, uh, and uh, I also wanted to talk about just structuring the journey. Um, because I know you added some things, you know, you, you, you know, the, the scavenger confrontation isn't in the, isn't in the original yeah. poem, for example. Um, I wanted to talk about how you structured Gawain's journey in terms of the challenges that he faces on, uh, with the each encounter and, and, and the ways he is tested, the ways he is con- challenged and confronted by his own failings with, with each 
encounter. Was it always that way? Did you always think Scavenger, St. Winifred, Lord and Lady? It it was. And 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 some of that reflects like the linear way in which I adapted the text, which is that I was reading the poem and writing the script at the same time. Mm-hmm. And reading the poem for the first time since college as I was writing the script. <laughs> and and so when you're reading the poem and when he leaves, you know, when the year has passed and he sets out on his journey, there are these brief mentions of encounters with giants and battles. And I'd see those and think, well, that would be a cool scene. I'm going to write that. <laughs> and, and so those sequences sprung from that. Um, and then you keep reading and realize he gets to the Lord and Lady's castle very quickly. Um, <laughs> and that the vast, indeed, the, the bulk of the poem takes place there. But because I hadn't gotten to that part yet in the poem, I knew it happened, but I hadn't gotten there yet. And so I was just like getting caught, carried away, writing these other sequences. And the Winifred sequence is derived from the poem because it mentions that Gawain passed by Holyhead on his journey. And Holyhead is a place in Wales that you can go to. I went there last year, in fact, uh, while location scouting for Peter Pan and Wendy. And um, it is has this legend around St. Winifred, whose head was cut off and thrown into a spring. And those, all those, the, the, the resonance of that story within, you know, there's a reason the anonymous poet included that mention, that, that, that little snippet of trivia in the original poem, because there's a resonance to that legend that anyone who would have known that legend, which surely in that era, most people probably did, especially in Wales in the 14th century, they would have known what Holyhead was and they would have mm-hmm. understood the inference that the poet was making. And I wanted to go further and make that a literal sequence in the, in the movie. Um, but it allowed me to do something which was to sort of have these encounters, these, these, these episodes, which are very traditional pieces of, you know, uh, the quest saga, uh, some narrative structures to have these different episodes, these encounters along the way that sort of reflect the five virtues of, of a knight. And because Gawain's journey already is a life and death thing. Like the stakes already there. He's going to face his death. Each one of those encounters can't be as much about like, am I going to live or am I going to die? But more about what choice I'm going to make in a very minute way. Um, and, and so each one of those choices is predicated upon one of the, you know, the, the knightly virtues. And obviously the most easy one to pinpoint is chastity when he faces off with Elisabeth Vikander's lady. Yeah. But then you have, you know, um, courteousness with with uh with saint winifred you have generosity with the with um with uh the scavenger mm-hmm. and you have uh, friendship with the with the lord and the only one we avoided was was piety and and we sort of set that one aside intentionally because i wanted to leave the themes of christianity behind at a certain point they're they're going to be prevalent throughout the story regardless but i did want to leave that one behind and when the, when the scavengers um, break his shield with the Virgin Mary's face uh, on the inside of it, that was sort of the point at which we leave that side of his story behind. Interesting, especially given the, the film's real first line and that exactly, yes, very nice yes. challenge takes, you know, takes place on Christmas Day. On Christmas Day. And, and then when you get to the chapel, you see that cross that's crumbling and overtaken by nature. And, and that's a, a very on-the-nose image. It's like that's that's that represents something that it literally represents. (laughs) 
and uh, yeah, I, I love also the idea of 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 testing those 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 elements of a knight's virtue. And I, I know from reading and listening to interviews with you that uh, part of your interest in Arthurian lore came from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. One hundred percent. So was there an element of only the penitent man shall pass? Was there an element of incorporating elements like that into the movie as well? Not as literally as that, but definitely. Mm-hmm. We definitely were. <laughs> we spent a lot of time talking about the Grail Knight from that movie, and uh, and and those those choices, like like, and, and should there be, you know, the the again, that was like a conversation we have is like, how dire should the the stakes be on each one of these encounters he has? Should they be? Should he potentially die in each one? As Indiana Jones does when he's making his journey towards the final chamber of the Grail Temple. And we ultimately veered away from that because we didn't want to um, diminish the stakes of his final encounter with the Green Knight. But of course, each one does have an element of, of fate to it. Each one has an element of life and death to it. You know, the scavengers leave him up and he has a vision of what could happen if he were not to escape from that moment. He sees his own death. Um, and th- th- it does have, there, there are stakes to them, but we try to diminish them uh, quite a bit so that we could keep the emphasis on the final encounter with the Green Knight. Mm. And uh, I, I've got to let you go in a second, David, but I, I did want to ask about the confrontation with the, the, the Lord and Lady, or the, the segment set in the Lord and Lady's house. Uh, specifically, yes. as, you, as you mentioned, the, the, the real test of his, of his chastity and the, the way that the, he is bequeathed the, 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 you know, the magic green sash again. Um, given, I know you've said in the past that there is an element of the, the sightless woman is his mother, Given what happens in that scene, this is a very interesting. The whole film is an interesting twist in that relationship with his mother and how she's, you know, behind essentially behind all of it. Behind all of it, yes. Uh, her her participation in that scene in particular is also very very interesting. Uh, can you talk about about that and your intentions behind that scene? It's a hell of a last question, I know. It is, it, and, and it's it's one that I don't have like a great answer for because that is where we're getting getting closer to the text in terms of that woman is in the poem and she is Morgan Le Fay and she's always there <laughs> and she's always hanging about and never speaks. And, and so when we were shooting that scene, it just was like, Oh, well, of course she should be there. You know, like, like she, we, we've, we've, we've had her hanging around most of the scenes in the background and of course she would be there too. And we didn't necessarily think about, I mean, we knew, but by that point we knew of course that, Morgan Le Fay was also Gowan's mother. That was in the script. Mm-hmm. But it was one of those things where the implications of it weren't 100% like on our minds. We weren't thinking about how creepy that is or strange or upsetting that may be. And in retrospect, you, you'd look at it and you're like, as filmmakers, we, we were like, oh, we've, we've dipped our toe into some very treacherous waters here. Mm-hmm. And, and it's hard to reconcile like exactly what Morgan Le Fay in our film as Gawain's mother is doing in that room and why she would be there. Other than to say that she is always there making sure that she's always looking out for her son, whether she's testing him and trying to get him to have a story to tell, to be the man that she knows he can be to, to, to stretch his wings and leave the nest and fly or whether her maternal instincts are kicking in, she's making sure that he is safe and trying to take care of him at the same time. And those two competing interests are always there. 
uh, with her character in the movie. She's always both trying to push him out and trying to pull him back at the same time. And in that scene, it reaches a particularly messy climax. It does, literally, That is probably instructive for all young men who need to move out of their mother's home. (laughs) Very good point. Very good point. But I just loved how how, how you, you, you tweaked it so she was behind everything. But of course, crucially... When the Green Knight uh, makes his challenge, it, Gawain makes his own choice. It's his own choice right. in that moment. He's not been influenced by his mother. And I, I thought that was very, very important. Absolutely. And on that note, on that note, uh, David Lowry, it's been a pleasure as always. It's been such a pleasure, Chris. Thanks, thanks for having me on again. Indeed, indeed. Until the next time. Thanks, sir. Take care. Take care. All right. So that was David Lowry. Uh, I think he was clean shaven when I spoke to him. I was very disappointed. Oh, so he, usually, he usually sprouts a great big, maybe he was saving himself from November. Yes, maybe Probably. so. Mm. Yeah. A great big bushy beard. Great big bushy beard. Crusty jugglers. <laughs> oh, Lord. Anyway, The Green Knight. That's a good film, isn't it? Yes. Didn't yes. mind it, yeah. Beth, you have notes. You have actual <laughs> notes. <laughs> no, so don't I'm going to come to you first. It's all swatty no, no, web. It's all swatty web. I have notes. I have notes, teacher. I have notes. Let me just look them up. They're on my phone. Questions for David Lowry. Haha. <laughs> fuck you. Uh, opening shot, Dev on fire. Yeah. Mm. Closing shot, Green Knight chuckling in a paternal way, saying, off with your head. Did it always close that way? Well, folks, uh, I can't remember what he said in the interview, but I presume the answer was <laughs> yes. Fantastic. Yeah. Great yes. stuff. Anyway, Beth, you've got notes. Tell me about this film. Okay. Uh, yes. You like it? I loved this film. I do fully concur that David Larry is one of my favorite, favorite filmmakers um, working today. A filmmaker that I think operates with a lot of empathy mm. for his characters. And would always be uh, quite curious to see like a, like a David Larry slasher maybe where everyone is just okay. Because he he really does, <laughs> I think, exercise such care when it comes to drawing his characters, and and this one, I will say full disclosure, I haven't seen Pete and the Dragon, so I oh, can't. It's really charming. I would, re- charming. And, yeah. and maybe that would be a Christmas watch for me because I I imagine based on scale and and kind of thematically vaguely, I'm gonna say maybe the Dragon doesn't have quite the same quest as this, but I would. I would imagine that operates on kind of the same scale, but mm-hmm. I've just seen um, a ghost story in The Old Man and the Gun and to see him mm-hmm. work on this scale, to expand, to build this absolutely stunning world, which is obviously rooted in Arthurian legend, but to see his reading on this through the eyes of an incredibly empathetic and, and creative filmmaker has just been spectacular. And I'm so glad that it did sort of get a big screen release in the end because uh, mm. this was this was one of the first I sort of ran out to go and see. Yeah. There was so much excitement about this film when the trailer dropped. We were all excited about the idea of, of David Lowry getting to do something on a, on a fairly big canvas. It's, yeah. a, it's an A24 yeah. movie and I'm not throwing Marvel money at this thing, but it's still pretty big canvas uh i guess for for him and for this this tale and then the trailer dropped and it came with it these incredible images mm. um that seared into our brain dev patel with his head on fire as we you know, as we saw the opening shot of the movie and then obviously in this country particularly it went away mm. it was dangled out to us the prospect of seeing this on the big screen and then it was cruelly snatched away and uh, it ended up in prime video which is which is fine and some cinemas carried it for for a little while uh, but when you saw the movie, Helen, were you, was it what you were expecting? Did it meet your expectations? Did it surpass them? It didn't. It was what I was expecting in that I expected to find it um, a little confusing at times. I liked where it ultimately went and what I think the ultimate message of the films 
the messages of the film were and um and it was amazing to look at and i just loved that it was so kind of out there and so weird and i have been very frustrated over the years because i feel like you know these legends the arthurian kind of cycle and all of those stories have so much meat and people have been so bad at bringing them to the screen like the, the you know the guy Ritchie Arthur, king arthur film terrible hey no i mean it is don't you come after masterpieces uh, well look I, I i'll tell you what i really like the score i genuinely love the score <laughs> i love the score de niro brando edward norton no, one the, of frank oz's best sorry, films the, the daniel pemberton score for king oh, arthur legend of the sword but generally speaking king arthur films not good and it is frustrating because there are really good tellings of the legends the legends themselves have endured for a thousand years or so certainly 500 and you know there's there's a lot of meat there there's stuff to be explored there's cool ideas and mm. and this is the first film that I can remember that's done something genuinely cool with them. So mm-hmm. I love that. John, did you enjoy this film? Did you enjoy exploring this film? This this elliptical, strange, uncanny, hard to fathom at times movie? Yes. Yes, I did. Uh, yeah, I think I, it's funny when you can't have something, you want something more, you know, mm-hmm. it was it was there was a bit of that. The, the hype train for this film was pretty huge at one point, especially in this country. And I think it did kind of meet my hype levels. It sort of met met them at the gate. I thought it was pretty remarkable. It's just one of those films where I'm just sort of staring there, slack jawed, just being like, "What the hell am I watching?" Mm. You know, what is this? Is visually just so sort of um, awe inspiring, and his sort of the imagery that he just chucks at you is so strange and and unusual, and so sort of artfully done. You know, the way he mixes like natural landscape with this very like careful use of cgi and yeah it's a beautiful film um and sort of riveting in how weird it is i was just sort of it's you know it moves so slowly and carefully but i just couldn't like Mm. like prize my eyes away Mm. from the screen you have to tap into his rhythms and you have to plug into his rhythms Mm. and i certainly I, i you know on the weekend that it opened here on prime video I certainly did see an awful lot of people on Twitter going, "What the fuck?" Because <laughs> yes. it's not, it's not, it's not what's advertised in a brochure. No. So you get this very, very languidly paced, mm. sedate movie. The big confrontation of the film at the end is a man kneeling in front of <laughs> you know, a tree, a, a tree, tree, essentially for a couple of days and nights, <laughs> and it feels almost like it's playing out in real time. Uh, if you if you're coming to this thinking, oh, Arthurian legend, there's going to be lots of swords and sword fights, mm-hmm. and you know, there's going to be lots of wizardry. And there's a fair amount of wizardry, yes, but there's also long monologues from Alicia Vikander, and there's also lots of very very confusing encounters with very very strange people or mm-hmm. and or creatures, and some beautiful beautiful scenes. And I can see that it might. It might not be everyone's cup of tea. Mm. It certainly wasn't. I, I think I wrote the review for Empire for this, and uh, the comments on the Facebook and Twitter from some people were, uh, "Well, I gave it five stars." I would say many people would disagree with that, <laughs> based on what was on the internet. There was lots of most boring film I've ever seen. Uh, just dull. Oh, was, come on! I can show them way more boring films. <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> <they're, they're> just <laughs> trying hard enough. It's true. But I think I think it I think it has been quite divisive. You know, mm. I think I don't think it's connected with everyone. It's not a film that you know 
engages in obvious things right. like plot and character and dialogue in a normal way. <laughs> yes. And it is, you know, you, you said, Chris, that you have to kind of get in line with, with his pacing and, and what he's trying to do. And I think it is mm. one of those films. There are films like this, you know, sort of Terrence Malick or, or Jim Jarmusch. You mm. have to yeah. sort of get your Terrence Malick or your Jim Jarmusch head on and you go in and you know, okay, it's a Jim Jarmusch film. Nothing is going to happen and I'm okay with that. And now let's see what happens. Yeah. You know, um, Terrence mm. Malick, you're like, okay, there's going to be some grass. It's going to blow in the wind. <laughs> let's just be okay with that and then see what happens. Yeah. And and it's a little bit similar with this. It's like, okay, a fox is going to show up and it's going to be weird. <laughs> let's go with that. <laughs> I love the fox, by the way. Yes. I thought the fox was great. Yes. Talking fox. Who, talking fox. Who seems to need it like a lozenge or something. Fruity <laughs> yeah. yeah. fox. Yeah. Mm, so, chaos reigns. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a little antichrist. Yeah. Well, maybe try and unusually for a spoiler special, go through it as chronologically as possible because I think that might help given okay. the fact that it is a, a fairly episodic film. Uh, but before we do so, what really stood out about this movie for you? We haven't mentioned Dev Patel yet apart from in reference to his uh, wonderful, voluminous <laughs> hair. Oh my God, it's just perfect. <laughs> Perhaps it the is. best it's ever been, I think. Yeah, I loved it hair? in David Copperfield, but then it wasn't mm. much different in David Copperfield. Very similar, yeah. Yeah. Um, but facial hair, he's added the facial hair for this movie. He, he didn't has. have the facial hair in David Copperfield, True. yeah. He's sort of a, a a phrase he used for himself, I think it was for his BAFTA awards speech for Liam, and he referred to himself as a noodle. And I think that is such a wonderful <laughs> self-deprecating way to describe yourself. What sort of tall and skinny? Tall and skinny. Tall and skinny noodle. A little bit... Um... Self-deprecating. Oh, oh, no. There we is that, go. Is that, is that anything? That's yeah, good. Well, That's good, John. Yep. Yeah, um... You've earned yourself another five minutes in the booth. Thanks. <laughs> but yeah, as this kind of like a noodle in, in stature, but a dashing one, a dashing mm. noodle. And I think they've... He's... he's embrace that especially with the hair and I mean it's a talking point for a reason it is incredibly dashing and lustrous and oh my goodness let's talk about we the character just... let's talk because this is, this is in danger of going off the rails yeah. 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 Head and so, De- uh, thirst trap. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but he embodies um, what you know I think a, a large part of what David Lowry puts into his characters and writes into his characters is is their works in progress and and none more so than this he's you know he's incredibly flawed he he fucks up a lot like he does a lot of things that uh, a nobler more fully formed person would not do but he takes quick routes he takes you know cowardly routes he you makes know, bad decisions he makes Huge really bad decisions. bad decisions he really does he trusts the wrong people he comes for the fox which was my biggest you know that was that was a shade too far for me um but you know you're always rooting for him it's, a, it's an oddly contemporary performance mm. as well which is something i like about the film as a whole it feels strangely modern given and and that's not to say it doesn't lend into you know you can you can hear like the chainmail in this it's it's incredibly authentic but at the Mm. same time feels contemporary and I think that's very much the case for Dev Patel's Mm. uh, performance but I love it I love it and I'll say it again the noodle he doesn't look comfortable swinging the axe he's you know he's not firm on his feet he's not yeah He's not a warrior. He's 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 not a knight in shining armor, basically, yeah. mm. or a knight even at this point. And um, you know, he behaves in a way that is cowardly and dishonorable uh, at several occasions, and kind of undermines the whole legend of Gawain and of the Knights of the Round Table and all of those sort of ideals um, in ways that are really interesting. Because I think as the film goes on, and I think what I take from the film is that it is it is about learning that there is value to those. 
ideals. It is learning that there is value to striving to be better and and that uh, ultimately, you know, just going for power, just going for glory will be an empty victory and will actually be worse mm-hmm. than da- death, essentially, is what I take from that, that sort of final kind of fake out. And I think that kind of lesson to learn is a really valuable one, actually. I feel like we could do with more honour in the world today. I feel like, the you know, the fact that, I mean, not to get political or anything, but like, you know, politicians now lie and there's absolutely no consequences in a way that maybe in the past there would have been. Um, and, and I feel like we maybe need to get back to a concept of personal honour and personal striving to be a better person as well as striving to kind of get ahead. And I think there's an element of that in the story of Gawain here or Garwin. Um, David Lowry just let everybody pronounce it however they want <laughs> yeah. to, which I kind, of, I, I kind of enjoyed actually. I mean, I would not correct Sean Harris No, I wouldn't either, no. I'm pronouncing it Garwin. Yeah, okay, Sean. Yep. yep. Sounds I mean, in, good to in, me. In fairness, he, he was he was actually good at being warm here. He was he yeah. was he was not scary, Sean Harris. And yeah. I, I think there was a real sense. I, I, just I really loved shit his my pants in a default reaction. <laughs> it's like it's like Pavlov's dog now. I see Sean Harris. I go ah, and you know. But no, but I like I I loved his Arthur, and I think that's something we should talk about as well. But but I think there is a really inter- There's a real journey and a real arc for Gawain in this, and and I I really didn't expect yeah. quite that much of it going yeah. in, and I, I thought that worked out brilliantly. Do you think Dev Patel's casting was sort of deliberately playing off his persona almost? Because you you know like Dev Patel in the last few years, as we've discussed, his hair is is very beautiful, mm-hmm. and he's become almost like the internet's boyfriend. You know, he's like this this sort of this figure of of love among a large, you know, portion of film watching people. Race. I think he just embodies decency, doesn't he? Which yeah, is which is interesting because then you can you can take a character like like Gawain, Gawain, Garwin, or Garmin, uh, which actually <laughs> would have meant he would have been able to get to his destination a lot quicker. Um, that was a sad enough joke, in case you weren't sure. Uh, you know, he he's all I mean, apart from maybe did he play a bad guy in Airbender, the last Airbender? Yeah, it's a bit more complicated than that because okay. you know he's an anti-hero. Okay, whatever. But uh, you know, by and large, he plays decent, upstanding people, but who are flawed as well. Yeah, I think that works very, very nicely here. I mean, I see this as being not entirely not of a part with his, you know, David Copperfield and so on. Like he is, mm. he's a callow youth, I think, in this mm. one who has a lot of growing up to do. Um, one of the um, the articles I was reading about the film and, and where David Lowry was quoted was talking about him. Essentially, there's there's an element of failure to launch and his mum essentially concocting mm-hmm. this entire thing to get him the fuck out of the house <laughs> yeah. get him to grow yeah. up already and, yeah, yeah. and I think there's an element of that I think she sees shortcomings in him and is almost trying to burn them out through this quest and through this trauma and through through everything that he goes through mm-hmm. um, it, that she's she's putting them through an ordeal to make him a better man and make him a knight in shining armour maybe mm, which is one of the reasons why she keeps turning up or keeps keeps an eye on him and mm-hmm. um, interferes with his um, sometimes literally interferes with him uh, on on his on his way uh, to his confrontation with the Green Knight and um, should we talk about the Green Knight should we talk about oh, yes please should we talk about Finchie from The Office he's having <laughs> Ralph, Ralph Innocent um, which I believe is how you pronounce it although I've heard people say Innocent but I'm I always thought I've heard, said I've heard, innocent. I've heard yeah. innocent, but okay. uh, uh, Ralph, if you're listening, um, or if anyone knows the definitive way of pronouncing Ralph's surname, then do let us know. I've always heard innocent, but uh, but there you go. Then in comes in comes someone with an innocent, and all bets are off. But anyway, he plays the Green Knight in this uh, implacable, unstoppable foe who's thrown a kettle over a pub. What have you done? 
What do we make of? He's having a hell of a time, isn't he, Old mm. Ralph? What a wonderful stroke of casting this was. I would not have in a million years said, and and I do solely know him as Finchy, and I, I apologise for that, Ralph. But <laughs> what a stroke of wonderful casting this is! I mean, the the design with the green light in itself is extraordinary, and it's again, it's one of my favourite things about the film. The sound design is wonderful. The creaking of the trees, the the way that his body moves, the way that the the trees are kind of incorporated into his physicality. And then, yeah, you've got this wonderful growling voice that just lends to the the earthiness, this kind of guttural. I mean, this is, he is, you know, he is this this strange, elusive, you know, force to be reckoned with. Yeah, it, there's an, a really interesting moment in that final scene where his face kind of flickers. Did you notice that? Yes. And his face flickers through all of everybody. the... Everybody, basically. Yeah. But... um. It, it that was really clever. So his 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 identity almost isn't quite set. He is a construct. He is a he is a a fiction, um, and uh, he he exists for a purpose. He's almost a robot, but you know, just magical and medieval rather than you know nuts and bolts. And I thought that was really clever. Um, yeah, I think when you kind of realise exactly kind of what's going on, I I just love that. I I just love the fact that oh, it's all his mum. It's great. But yeah, I thought I thought he was fantastic. He's he's in um, the tragedy of Macbeth for about a minute and a half mm. as well. So he's having a good year. Or the right Green Knight is Green Knight. <laughs> Green Knight yeah. is yeah wow. yeah. Or Ralph yeah. Innocent, one of the two. I forget. Okay. Yeah, or Rafe Innocent as well. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know for sure. Uh, yeah, he's terrific. He was also uh, obviously in Robert Eggers' The Witch mm. as well. He has one of the mm. best voices in the business. That he does. Big yeah. growling Leeds uh, voice yeah. of his. Bloody good rap as well. Just bloody good bloody rap. good. Rap. <laughs> no, he's really. Good. I love the design of it as well. I thought the um, like the sound design, where every move that he mm. makes, you hear this sort of creaking of bark. Yeah, that's such a good touch. And it wasn't. I, I thought initially it might have been CG or some sort of mocap going on, mm. but no, that was like lots of prosthetics and yeah. makeup. Yeah, and just sticking Finchy into um into a tree. Essentially, I'm, I'm in this day and age always a sucker for someone who goes for practical effects over yeah. CGI, and that seems inc- like a a real extension of David Larry's kind of approach to filmmaking. I love it. I love the landscapes of this movie as well. Mm. I love that. I love that sequence, that long tracking shot when he meets Barry Keoghan's oh my goodness, scavenger. Yeah. Yeah. And the, it just tracks him for ages and ages and ages. And you have this bleak, desolate Irish landscape mm-hmm. behind him. This is mainly where they shot the film. Um, and it reminded me, you know, there's Battlefield as well. Battlefield and just, you know, that, that really cre- creepy but ethereal scene with the giants. The giants are amazing. Mm. Leaving, doing whatever. I, I presume they were leaving and maybe moving on and, you know, triggering, you know, they were they were leaving and maybe triggering a new phase of modern life. But who knows where the hell they were going or why they were going there. But, uh, yeah, there's so many haunting and evocative images in this movie that I just thought were, were tremendous. And I really loved, you mentioned earlier on the aesthetic of the movie Beth and and how it's it's very grounded and very, very gritty and real, right from that opening shot where it pulls back and you have the you know, the you know, the camera pulling back through the window. And uh, it reminded me just of in terms of King Arthur movies and King Arthur related movies, it the it reminded me of honestly Monty Python and the Holy Grail, <laughs> which in a way may be the most gritty and kind of down home approach to these legends until now you know it's like it's almost like Jabberwocky in in terms of it all feels very lived in it all feels very ramshackle yeah and uh it's it's not about you know the huge huge budget I was so delighted to hear David Lowry say in a couple of interviews that Willow 
was a factor yes. for him because you know me I adore Willow but I, I genuinely did think of that when you see the body in the cage at the crossroads I'm like it's Mad Mardigan see that's interesting because I've seen so many people go I saw nothing of Willow in this movie and there is tonally not a lot tonally crossover, very I'm different mm-hmm. and uh, people who you know I, I, I saw you know because I was reading a lot, a lot around this movie preparing to interview David and I saw people saying that going I don't see a single thing of Willow in this movie and then you've immediately glommed onto that, which is which is I mean, interesting. Yeah, I, 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 I see Willow everywhere, obviously. You know, but, <laughs> is, no, but is he think... in the room right now? <laughs> <laughs> Point to him. <laughs> but there, but there is like there, there are there is darkness in Willow, and it does the same thing with you know real landscapes, and then puts these kind of fantastical things in mm. through matte painting and so on. Um, it and it has really scary bits and really gross bits and really weird bits that don't make a lot of sense and I think that's the kind of the elements that he's taken for this one could it have been I mean who who has the better hair Mad Mardigan or Dev Patel that's that's a toughie question for the that's, well, that's why I convened you guys in this room because I, I knew know. That, we, we, this is the that big was question. the question we needed to answer it's a big question point. I mean Mad Mardigan's is so swishy though you know it's really whoosh <laughs> while Helen is recovering from her episode uh <laughs> We'll go through this movie as chronologically as we possibly can um, in the time afforded to us. And we also have some listener questions cool. as well. So we'll, we'll try and take a couple of those. Uh, so it is episodic. It starts off with, obviously, Gawain, Garwin, Garwin, Garwin. Is, um, he is having a relationship with Alicia Vikander's Lady of the Night, mm. shall we say. Uh, then he has this confrontation with the Green Knight. A year passes, doesn't do much with his life at that time. Uh, he drinks a lot. He drinks a lot. Yeah, he soaks up the glory, doesn't he, quite a lot. Mm. He really does. And uh, the, so then he sets off on his quest, and the first person he meets on his quest is is Barry Keoghan. Yeah. Uh, red flag, immediately. Uh, <laughs> 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 Poor Barry Keoghan. Love Barry Keoghan, but you know, Barry if, Keoghan. If, I'm, if I'm on a quest and Barry Keoghan comes up to me, I'm like, no thanks, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go over there. He's go the over here. Definition of a scallywag, isn't he? he? Really is. Such like, a... <laughs> do not trust this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I come back to the casting with this fantastic casting, effortlessly um, mischievous face and presence, the playfulness that he embodies in his character, and the way he instantly, oh, you feel really uncomfortable as soon as he enters the frame and he starts to mimic um, Gawain and. Essentially traps him. Uh, go on, go on, go on, go on, go on, go on. You will, you will, you will. I would probably do it as well if if he was coming up and taunting me in the way he was. I'd be like, yeah, all right, take it. Uh, and we get to see him wielding an axe. I just, I have a real so- soft spot for Barry Keoghan. I love his trajectory as an actor, and I think this was a, a wonderful pairing of him and and Larry. And he's, yeah, he's just got the features that really. I say it's a modern film, but also it, he does have such a kind of transferable face for something of this this era. Really scampish, really like dirty behind the ears, and looked like he was having the most fun with it as well. So mm. I I absolutely loved him in this. I had a much more psychopathic edge from him than many of the words you've just used. Like <laughs> sc- scallywag, you know, it's quite a warm word to me. Yeah, Rumbunctious. Yeah. Rumbunctious. Oh, he's having fun, isn't he? Just like straight up killing people and stealing all their stuff. Yeah. But, but so yeah, so I thought he was quite sinister here, but but to really good effects. And mm. I think I think there's meant to be a little bit of a, a texture there to to Arthur's reign. You know, we see him as the kind of benevolent, not quite father figure, but you know fading, you know, elder statesman 
Arthur. And I think this battlefield, even though it makes no sense in terms of time-wise and everything, is, is meant to remind us that, you know, Arthur was a war king and he killed a whole bunch of dudes. And, uh, you know, his, his big, mm-hmm. to the extent that his legend is in any way based in history, it's, it's him defending the land from the Saxon invasions. And so he did, you know, straight up murder people. And I think this is the one scene where you kind of get a little bit of a reminder of that, that mm-hmm. there is a there is a history of violence, if you like, in this country, and that, that that shapes the round table and that you have to engage with that to really have the truth of what's going on here. It's also interesting as well in that each of the encounters that go on, I've always said Gawain. I've so always I'm, said I'm going to yeah, go with Gawain. Each of the encounters that Gawain has in the movie, in in a way, tests him and imbues him with something that he needs to then go on and complete his quest, or you know, kind of try and at least try and complete his quest, uh, ultimately. Um, and this one tests his sense of trust. He's far too trusting in this guy. Don't go off with Barry Keoghan. <laughs> he clearly means you ill will. But then it leads into that really trippy bit where they tie him up and leave him for dead, mm. and then we essentially do see him die. And it felt to me in that you know there's DNA and stylistic tricks and ticks that run through all David Lowry's films, but that bit felt to me with the slow 360 mm. coming around to the corpse. That felt very a ghost story to mm. me. Yeah, I thought it was uh, I thought it was really really terrific. John, what, what, what's your what's your take on that that structure that everything he does? Then you know his confrontation with Winifred with her missing head, and there's the giants, and yeah. then obviously the the utter madness with Joel Edgerton and Alicia Vikander and the Lord and the Lady and everything that happens there. Yeah. That 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 yeah, it obviously there is a quest there, but each quest, each encounter gives him something new that he needs. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe Helen can talk about this. I I I have skim read the original poem. Mm. I I wouldn't say I'm a, a you know, a classical scholar such oh, as yourself. I wouldn't yourself. say that either. <laughs> but uh, you know, I think the original poem is is about that sort of classic test of heroism and valor and honor. I think I guess th- these are like testing different parts of his character, right? Yeah, and- I think a lot. I mean, a lot of these specifics have come from different sources, and he's sort of just drawn them in and kind yeah. of fitted them in with um, Gawain's story because it, it. A lot of this isn't in the book. The Lord, Lord and Lady are, are different, and they're very much in there, and they're they're a big part of it. Yeah. Um, but like Saint Winifred is completely unconnected, and that's something that, that Dave Lowry's just yeah. taken in. But I really love how it is all seemingly tied to his death like death yeah. is this thing that runs through the whole film right i mean it's literally the first shot of the film is yeah. dev patel on fire you know and <laughs> sorry <laughs> he really is he's <laughs> i was about to respond your defense is terrified but which only football fans would get <laughs> sure okay. yeah he's probably very good at kicking balls as well uh <laughs> but no i mean the ghost story uh, comparison I think is really apt I think it is like thematically feels closest to that film it's like film dealing with mortality and you know confronting your mortality and he's like constantly being given these sort of visions of his of the end of his life mm-hmm. um, and that yeah that 360 pan shot is just amazing and and so slow and silent mm. and really like pondering it in in great depth I saw a Swiss film a couple of years ago, which was literally only 360 panning shots. And it was all about a tree in a forest that gets cut down, taken on a lorry, taken on a boat, goes over to the Amazon to build new houses or something. Very weird film, but literally only 360 panning shots. 
incredibly slowly like that. And it did remind me of that, obviously, because of the forest setting. But I think it was a great way of showing that he's shit scared he's going to die right there, you know. Um, I also think what's interesting about that scene, I think one of the themes of the film is the sort of religion versus the natural world and this idea of civilization as a unnatural force, I think. So that's why, you know, Arthur and Guinevere are sick and dying um, mm. and they just look wizened and unhealthy the whole way through. They make him that shield with the Virgin Mary painted inside and that's broken pretty much the first bit of trouble he gets into. Whereas his mum and her ladies and her witches, um, you know, embroider the the sash that will protect him and that's the thing that is kind of closer to nature and is more likely to actually be of use to him, weirdly, as time goes on. Maybe the colour also plays plays mm-hmm. into that as well. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a movie that's, where colour is very, very important. Obviously, Alicia Vikander has a big old speech about colours and how important they are. Green is the colour of earth, of living things, of life and of rot. Red is the colour of lust. Green is what lust leaves behind, all that, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sash is blue, if I remember rightly, is it? Or is it green? I thought it was green, but maybe I'm... I think it is green. Is it green? Okay. Which would make sense. (laughs) Obviously. Why would it be blue, you idiot? Um, Do write in if you know, A, how to pronounce Ralph Innocent's name, and B, (laughs) if you remember the colour of the sash. (laughs) It's the only way we'll get this information. Yeah. But you're right. I I love that stuff. I love the idea that it is about, and I, I think David Lowry and I spoke about this, that it is about coming to terms with your mortality and confronting your own death. And what's fascinating... And we're going to jump past the Lord and Lady sequence for the time being. I know we have a listener question about that, which is basically what the fuck was going on in that <laughs> sequence. So get ready for that, folks. But what's fascinating about the end of the movie is, of course, that for a long period, he you think he's finally mustered up the courage to confront what may or may not be coming to him. And then does a runner. Mm. <laughs> which is all part of this this theme this this work in progress because i think every chance he has generally on this quest to flinch he flinches mm-hmm. quite literally and then and then on all sorts of symbolic levels as well i really really enjoyed that twist to the story i really enjoyed that it wasn't an inherently straightforward noble end he did have to grow an awful lot mm. and in really visually beautiful ways. It's worth shouting out as well to uh, David Larry's cinematographer, Andrew Dros Palermo, who he worked with on A Ghost Story. And mm. something I'm, I'm really enjoying is seeing how he now has these long-standing collaborations with, with the people that he's worked on in the past. So that's wonderful. Mm. But yeah, no, in, in terms of storytelling, this was just all, all about David Lowry I think he's so keen to to show the insides of people even if they're they're really unattractive mm. unlike you know the head up although yeah. he keeps chopping the head off and setting the head on fire so maybe he is really trying to distract us from the hair um, so you can see the big cowardly guts um, inside but yeah mm-hmm. I, I, I really enjoyed that it wasn't tied up neatly it was it was rickety and shit and, yeah There's something almost shocking about hearing this almost kind of quasi-heroic figure who is uh, trying consistently to get out of the thing that he has voluntarily entered into. And instantly with Arthur, you know, when when he's sitting around uh, after the pub, um, he's literally kind of saying, do I have to go do this? Like, why, you know, like he doesn't accept the reality of a situation or at least he's trying to kind of negotiate his way out throughout. Mm. And that may be very human and everything, but it's... 
it's not right in story terms. Mm. You know, you accept the challenge and you then have to, you know, live with the consequences. That's that's how our stories go. And the fact that he doesn't do that and doesn't accept that is, you know, is weird. The belt is green. Yeah. <laughs> it's a green belt. It's in my notes. I even wrote it down here. Uh, <laughs> a sightless woman reunites Gawain with his magical green belt. Mm. So there you go. It's so green, the, sightless it's green woman, the sightless woman in the poem is his mother. Yes. And... Mm. um. The other two are kind of constructs, and that's why she looks like Elisa Vikander because he she has made someone who sh- she knows he fancies, which yes. makes that whole scene in the bedroom really freaking weird. Yes. It, it certainly does. It certainly, <laughs> it certainly does. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay, we're British. We're not going to get in too much into that. <laughs> Goodness, my word. Um, so let's talk about the the end. Let's work our way back to the Lord and Lady scene, and maybe we will confront what happens in that in that moment. With the uh, the sightless woman in the belt and the um, precious life fluid, uh, <laughs> that's as much as you're going to get. Um, anyway, so uh, the end of the film, that sequence where Gawain does a runner, uh, and then we have that flash forward, which, as Lowry said, is inspired by the Last Temptation of Christ, but also the end of the Twenty Fifth Hour, tremendous film. If you haven't seen that, mm-hmm. where we get to see the life he would have lived had he actually gone ahead with it and done a runner. And that is a life that is tinged with shame and tinged with guilt and doesn't work out for him. Yeah. Uh, what What's your take on that before we, we talk about the, the end and how ambiguous the ending is? That's what I think is the key moment of the film. That's him learning that you know, the, the point of honour, I think. I think that's that's him learning that a lot, living is not the only worthwhile thing that there are things that are more important there's living well and not just kind of surviving a moment mm-hmm. like this and that I think is just really powerful and really interesting this mm-hmm. this idea that it's not enough to just survive you have to also be able to live with yourself you have to also be able to you know see yourself as a good person and the shame and the guilt and the humiliation that goes through his life with him from that decision onwards shapes and poisons every single facet of that life and indeed of his entire country and that is bad basically and that's what he has to learn that's ultimately what he has to learn there's a point where he says to I think I think it's to Alicia Vikander he says honour that's why a knight does what he does mm. might be the green knight no it's, it's to Alicia Vikander uh, but you can sense that he doesn't quite believe he it he hasn't internalised no. that you know he yeah. says it but he, he, he kind of you know, talks the talk but has never walked the walk no, it's a distinct lack of living that he's done up until now. It's essentially getting from one day to the next through whatever destruction mm. he can muster um, and a huge responsibility. How would you do it? How would If you had a year to live and you knew for a fact? We well, see, he, the, the problem in the first place is he shouldn't chop the knight's head off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, um, he, should, he should, you know, Just tap, him, him, tap, tap him, him on the shoulder or something. Yeah, it's um, like youthful gusto. Yeah. Doesn't think through, doesn't think things through. And and I I don't you know that that is the kind of the first dishonourable action I think for me anyway that he takes that that's not the sort of the merciful you know again shining knight that he's supposed to be no it's not earned at all but if you had a year to live and mm. you knew for a fact you were going to die a year from now on this day what would you do podcasts or would you uh, <laughs> would you would you live at the bottom of a bottle how would how would you react John how would you how would you how would you go about it Vegas I don't, I don't know <laughs> Vegas. <laughs> Um, then go around to Ralph Innocent's house and just kneel in front of him for two days yeah <laughs> yeah just chuck a kettle well, over a pub <laughs> um, so the, the film ends 
the film ends with that very ambiguous note with um, the green light saying, off with his head. We don't see what happens. Mm. What do you think happens? Oh, there's no way that head came off. Yeah. There's not, no. I put, I put green money on that. There's not, no, no. I don't know. I, I, I kind of, I mean, it, it's, it is ambiguous for me. And I, I like that. I just think he doesn't do it. Yeah, I, I mean, agree. In the poem, he survives, right? Yeah. He just gives him he a gives little him a nick, nick on yeah. the on the neck, and then he's he's off. And it ends on a much more optimistic note in the poem. Mm. I, it's... But listen to the affection in the Green Knight's voice. And I just think as well, David Lowry again loves his characters. Mm. I always think he. I mean, if you look at the those wonderful behind the scenes stills of him, he's he's in the dress, he's in costume on the set with them, essentially playing dress up with his friends. I just <laughs> I feel like. I feel like he doesn't have it in him to be that ruthless. I don't think that's the film that he necessarily set up to make. Well, it's I've I'm f- forgive me if I'm totally misquoting him here, but I'm sure I've heard from an interview with him. He re-edited this film in lockdown, right? Like it was all pretty much good to go just before COVID hits. I think it was supposed to premiere at Sundance or something, mm-hmm. and and then he basically had another go in post production. And I'm sure I've read that there was a cut of him where he is beheaded and i think maybe in the the re-edit it he left it on a more ambiguous note perhaps because he for exactly the reason you're saying he wants to be more empathetic to his characters i i could be like absolutely talking about my ass here but um, no you're probably right and just shattering my illusion that david larry is the most wonderful <laughs> cheerful man who ever existed in hollywood yeah no he's he's a he's a murderous psychopath yeah i don't you know, i'm not sure i'm not sure what that ending gives us if he just dies you know because again I think it is a film about learning I think it is a film about growing I think it is a film about becoming a better man and I mean maybe there's still something to be said for that if you become a better man and are still beheaded maybe that still counts for something but it feels you know less satisfying yeah absolutely it feels like it's sort of it's a wonderful life kind of seg isn't it Mm. this is the life that you could have if you carry on the way you're going here's your second chance do better Um, yeah. He said to me, and you've, you've already heard this, of course, if you're listening to this, but he said to me that the uh, the one thing we did shoot that was different was that last shot of Ralph uh, that we end the movie on. When we shot that take, uh, I just asked him to stand up and raise the axe over your head. And when, so we kept the camera rolling. I'm just reading this off a, a transcript. Uh, and he did that. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll use that as a very beautiful image, as a striking image. But it changed the emphasis on the ending. So... That's what the that's what he's told me. Okay, he may have yeah. said something else. So elsewhere. it wasn't. It, he didn't shoot an actual severed Dev no, Patel head. I don't think. I don't think okay. we've got a, a prop Dev Patel head with illustrous hair knocking oh around God, uh, somewhere. Because <laughs> no, prop, no, there's no special effects house in the world no, that could do like that. It, what do you want me to do? Replicate Dev Patel's hair? What do you think I am? Replicate Fucking perfection? I'll, I'll what? Pay you do this? To yeah. Do that. yeah. <laughs> Although if there is one, I would like it in my in my living room. Perhaps. Fuck off! You've got hair. <laughs> Give the hair to me. I have very, I have precious few follicles. Give, give me the hair. Give me Dev Patel's hair, you pricks. My goodness. But even that shot, if that's that shot as described, that's not actually necessarily saying he dies because that shot essentially would take place in the poem because he raises the axe above his head, he brings it down, and then he just gives yeah. him a little nick. He mm-hmm. stops at the very last minute. Absolutely. And like and, I say, and the only reason he gets a nick is because he has kind of broken the rules of the game by wearing the sash that gives him protection. Mm-hmm. Sashes are quite important, aren't they, Helen? <laughs> wow. 
<laughs> anyway, let's get, not get into Northern Irish politics, shall we? Oh, wow. oh I see. <sighs> um, but as what I was saying to John, the, the there's a there's a twinkle in his eye. Uh, I think I said this to David Lowry too. There's a twinkle in his eye and a chuckle in his voice. There's mm. a sort of paternal, mm. even maybe grandfatherly approach. Or maternal, really. Or maternal, yeah. 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 Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. No, I see. I see. Mm. Yes. Mm. What? Because if it's his mum, it's his mum's creation. I know. So, you know, it makes sense. Silly. So silly. Oh, dear. Yes. <laughs> there we go. I've been admonished by Beth again for being silly. Stop, being, stop that. Stop that. Who was it yesterday? Stop getting born wrong. <laughs> now, stop that. You're just being silly. Smart Alec. That was yesterday. Smart Alec. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm being a silly smart Alec. Uh, anyway. Uh, yeah, I think, I think the ending of the movie is quite optimistic. And I think he sends mm. him on his merry way and goes, here you go. Pulls his ear, not rips it off. He pulls his ear and goes, "There you go, kid. Now do something good with your life." That's what I think is happening. Yeah. The well, I, the, you know, the the actual ending is uh, not Dev Patel at all, but presumably his daughter, right? Is it the post credits scene? Of, did you all see that? No, I did not. There is a post credit scene in this film, very, very briefly, right at the very end of the credits. Uh, you just see a shot of what I think is his daughter, and then Spider Man comes in. And then, yeah, <laughs> and Nick Fury wanders in and says. Uh, no, it's yeah. I think it's just his daughter. Okay. Uh, I I'm Where not I'm in? not making this up. I I wouldn't think to watch a movie like this yeah, you until the very was, end. No. Yeah. Yeah. Larry, <laughs> you motherfucker! Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god. Huh. All right. Well, listen. Whilst we're all trying to watch it in silence, um, <laughs> let's take a couple of listener questions because I know Beth in particular has to leave very very soon. Um, uh, I can't find the question exactly here. Let me see. Was this one? The Green Knight was a film, wasn't it? All right, here's a question. Uh, this is... <laughs> yes. yes, it was. <laughs> it was, thank you. Uh, from Nandy Selson, regular contributor of questions to the podcast. The Green Knight was a film, wasn't it? Can someone smart explain what the fuck was going on with Joel Edgerton? Okay. Hello. Well, in the poem... <laughs> in the poem... Joel Edgerton's character is the Green Knight. He is revealed to be mm-hmm. that character whose name I do remember. The Lord. The Lord. Yeah. Um, he, ha- he has a full name in the poem, but there's yeah. a lot of ambiguity with the names in this. So, you know, for example, Merlin is in this movie, but it's never actually yes. called Merlin. He's mm-hmm. just magician. King Arthur and, and Guinevere are, are 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 never actually named in the credits as King Arthur and Guinevere. His mother is Morgan Le Fay, but she's not credited as Morgan Le Fay. Mm. So it, it's interesting. He's playing around with that. But but as to what he's actually doing in the film, um, I mean, it's it's intriguing isn't it he's he's almost being quite playful in how he approaches Gawain he's sort of like uh, he's he's trying to be he, he's he, I mean he's there to test him it's really there to set up Alicia Vikander's you know sort of uh, phantom temptress mm, yeah. character uh, and and again I think that diverges from the poem because I think in the poem he does resist her charms yeah so well ish um so in the poem it's it's the same deal i'm going to go hunting every day and i'll swap whatever i find hunting for whatever you're given here in the castle then the missus comes in um he kind of fends her off but she gives him one kiss so uh, you know the first day the lord gets back um gives him like a couple of rabbits and he gives him a kiss and he's like uh Uh, (laughs) second day same thing but it's two kisses third day it's three kisses and the sash, which he doesn't mention. So that's kind of where he breaks the rules of the game. 
and the knight sort of lets him away with it. But then the knight is the green knight and he knows about that, which is why he gives them the nick at the end to show that, okay, well, I know you, you know, you mm. cheated a little bit, but like it's within the acceptable bounds of cheating, I guess, is the idea in this one. So yeah, so in the in the poem, they are basically kind of also pawns of um his mother, Morgan Le Fay, um, uh, and or at least in the in the in the film, it's his mother. It's not always necessarily Morgan Le Fay as his mother in the Arthurian legends. Um but no. Uh, but it is Morgan Le Fay who who sets it all up in the poem, and she was all basically of those characters. And so the Lord, the Lady, and the Green Knight are all kind of her puppets, as well as, and she herself is the old lady in the castle who is part of that household. And then makes her son get a handjob. Yeah, um, that's a little un. Yeah, kind of ministers. I would say. <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's this very hands-on approach to motherhood going on it's, there. It's oh boy. it's a very specific parenting uh, technique. Mm-hmm. It, you wouldn't find it in any textbooks. <laughs> we certainly don't condone it here at the Empire Podcast. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that 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 seems fascinating, and the whole aspect of his mother and his or her approach to uh, aiding him on his quest is also fascinating and uh, just really quickly Michael Curley wanted to know he, basically his read on it is that his mother called the Green Knight to give her son a chance of greatness but then she's not super pleased with how it plays out uh, but there's there's yeah there, there, there are all kinds of ideas about suppressed desire I think going on there as well which ultimately come into a head um, and on that unfortunate assemblage of words <laughs> <laughs> that is it for our Green Knight Spoiler Special. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Once again, thank you for subscribing to the Spoiler Specials. It really does mean a lot, your support. Uh, Beth has to run because got to work. Got to work. Got to work. Got to work. I will say on a closing note that the film did have one of the best um, timekeeping transitions since Babe. The beautiful puppets and the the spinning wheel was was hasn't been rivaled since the the little mice that say Mm. is it like three weeks later. (laughs) (laughs) So hats off to Larry for that for for topping that for me. Hats off indeed, and uh, thank you so much for listening to this. Uh, It is now time to say goodbye to my three knights of the round table of such lethal cunning. Beth Webb. Thank you. I'm sorry about it's the baby right. reference. It's okay. It's it's fine. It's fine. It was it was getting uncomfortable, Beth. We were, we were talking about Lifting mums the giving her sons hand jobs. Oh, no. it's, it's just it's not it's not what you want from your prime video content, is it really? Um, and it's goodbye from Helen O'Hara. We're knights of the round table. We dance whenever we're able. It is goodbye from an English knigget. His mother was a hamster and his father smelled of elderberries. It's John Nugent. Thank you. Goodbye. Yep. Goodbye. Oh my God, he farted in (laughs) your general direction. English food trough waffler. I will fart in your general direction. I will taunt you a second time. Uh, Is there somebody else we can speak to? (laughs) (laughs) Run away. Speaking of which, Beth has to do that, so I'm going to bring this to a a close. Uh, It's goodbye from me as well. I'm off to watch the last 30 seconds of The Green Knight and find out if there is indeed a post-credits sting. Stick around, folks, in case there's a post-credits sting in this podcast where I confirm or don't confirm. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye.
Hey everybody, it's Chris here, just jumping in for my own post credit sting to tell you that yes indeed, there is, as I'm sure you now know, having seen the film yourself, there is a post credit sting of sorts on The Green Knight, one which I didn't know existed, uh, and therefore didn't ask David Lowry about it. It is a young girl playing in a castle, and I think the inference is meant to be that that is indeed Gawain's daughter, that he makes the right choice, isn't beheaded by The Green Knight, and is spared, and goes on to have a wonderful future with a loving family. Possibly. I don't think it's a dream sequence, but that's just my take on the movie. Uh, two things as well. Uh, having listened back to the interview with David Lowry, he pronounced it Ralph Ineson. So maybe that is how it is pronounced. Uh, Ralph, uh, if you or anyone you know is listening to this, do let us know. Is it Innocent or Ineson? And the third thing is, I know that this podcast ended slightly abruptly. We were just getting into some of the really hardcore, heavy themes of the movie and sadly we had to curtail it there i don't know that there are any plans or time at the moment to do a second or a follow-up green knight spoiler special but perhaps we'll be able to address some of the issues we didn't get around to addressing at some point in the future but listen if you've come this far thank you so much for listening and that is definitely 100 it for me this time no post post credit sting this is it stop listening bye